Hi everyone, it's Christina Herrick, Produce Editor for The Packer, and I'm here today with another Tip of the Iceberg podcast. This time I'm talking to John Devaney, President of the Washington State Tree Fruit Association, about some of the challenges growers in the state are facing, and he also gives us a little bit of an update on the Washington apple crop for this year. John, thank you for joining me. Um, So I think while I've got you, you know, not on the phone, I wanted to say on the phone, but I guess while I've got you here, um, would you be up for giving a quick um, crop update on uh, Washington apples? Where are we? What are we looking like? You know, where are things right now? Sure. So this most recently harvested crop from fall 2023 was our really our second biggest apple crop on record. It's just under 140 million, 40 pound boxes of apples in Washington state. Uh, that's a lot bigger crop than we've had the last couple of years. Uh, and we had some weather challenges uh, the past couple of years. In 2021, Washington had, like, you know, the Northwest really had a heat dome event uh, that had some reduction in the total crop, though it still remained within the average range. This last, the previous crop here, 2022's harvested crop was much smaller. Uh, it was right around 100 million boxes as, a, as opposed to 140 this year. Uh, because we had such a cool wet spring that year. Uh, there was a lot less pollination. Uh, it resulted in just a much lighter crop. Uh, so this year we had great growing conditions uh, and, a, and a good size crop uh, as trees recovered. And, uh, and that is normally good news, a lot of good quality fruit. Uh, unfortunately, when a lot of other states have had a decent sized crop as well, we're not seeing the pricing that growers really need. Uh, and that's a challenge. Uh, and we've all been experiencing consumer inflation. Uh, growers are certainly seeing that on their costs of production. And it's causing a lot of anxiety and stress to see their costs of production going up steadily and sometimes not so steadily, but precipitously in the past couple of years. And then to have a great quality crop and feeling like you're not going to be able to uh, make the money that you need to on it uh, to keep the business going in some places. Yeah. And, you know, part of the reason that we're having this conversation, and I don't want this to be a Debbie Downer conversation at all, but I do think we, we've got some pretty heady topics to get into is, um, you know, your team reached out to me about some concerns that all Washington tree fruit growers have and all Washington growers have with some of these impacts and exemptions and labor issues that are going on. So um, why don't we why don't we get into that? Maybe, you know, one of the first things, the talking points was that gas tax exemption. So why don't you you talk to me about the impacts it has for growers? Why should the rest of the country care? You know, we are a national publication. So give us a little snapshot of that and then talk to us a, a little bit about what what the impact is for our audience. Yes. So uh, in 2021, the Washington legislature passed a Climate Commitment Act uh, that is essentially a cap and, and trade system for emissions in Washington state. Uh, and part of that legislation, uh, after intense debate, it narrowly passed. And part of that legislation was an exclusion for on-farm fuel use, uh, as well as for off-farm road transportation of ag products, so that those were exempt um, from that act because there re was recognition that farm fuels are a uh, necessary part of production, but food is essential. 
uh, and we're in produce, we're in a very competitive environment with low margins, and those are not costs that can easily be passed on. Uh, and to add those additional costs on a state-by-state -state basis could severely affect the competitiveness relative to other producers. So our legislature included that exemption, and growers were relieved that there, that was promised in the legislation. When we got to the implementation date in January of 2023, a lot of uh, our farmers were rudely shocked to find that their fuel deliveries included a surcharge for you know, the, the emissions credits that the fuel suppliers had purchased. And part of the problem was that while you exempt an end use, the credits were purchased and assessed at the refinery level. Uh, and how do you trace it through the entire fuel supply chain to make sure that, well, uh, someone showing up at a pump is taking that fuel back to their farm or is transporting agricultural goods versus something else? Uh, and that was a, an issue with uh, really not enough guidance and rulemaking around that legislation. Uh, and that is what we have been talking to our legislators and our regulatory agencies about for the last year, uh, that the, you know, the exemption was put into law for a very good reason uh, and it has bipartisan support. Uh, and yet it's not being realized for most producers. Uh, so many of them have been paying an extra 45 cents or so per gallon uh, for the last year. Uh, and they're not able to uh, get that money back so far, even though they should never have been having to pay that additional cost in the first place under the act. So we've been talking to legislators about the urgent need to address that, uh, both because uh, it, it is a competitive issue for Washington, you know, apple, pear, and cherry growers, as well as other agricultural producers in the state. Uh, and there are, there are a lot of fairness and equity issues too, uh, because some people are able to access the exemption depending on who your supplier is and how easily it is to trace your fuel through the fuel supply chain. Uh, if you're a large producer buying a tanker load of fuel to be delivered to your farm, it's a lot easier for that supplier to know it's all for ag use and give the exemption. Uh, if you're a smaller grower buying your fuel at a car lock station, you are not getting it in most cases. And so uh, in many cases, those least able to afford that cost increase have the least ability to access the exemption they were promised. Uh, and that, that fairness issue is one that's troubling for a lot of growers and a lot of legislators too. Uh, so we have been talking to our Washington state legislature about the need to follow through on commitments that were made uh, to producers in our state. Wow. And then, you know, we, we set off the conversation with a large apple crop and, you know, there's the, the state there and then you've got this going into it. Um, so, yeah, it sounds like there are, are some real challenges hitting uh, the uh, fresh produce industry in Washington. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, the, there's a lot of costs that are driven by state policy. Uh, and they affect growers' bottom lines. Most growers want to get more for their product, but profit is the difference between expense and returns. And you might you might not always be able to control the returns, but nor can you always control the expense, especially when they're driven by public policy. And that's why we stay so engaged in things that our state legislature and our state agencies are doing. Uh, for tree fruit, one of our biggest expenses, really the biggest one we have is labor. You know, we're a very labor intensive crop. It's about 60% of our production costs. 
Uh, and one change that Washington State's been going through in the past few years is the phase in of overtime pay requirements in agriculture, something that some other states, California notably, have been going through as well. In Washington, that was precipitated by a Supreme Court decision. Uh, our state Supreme Court at the end of 2020 uh, ruled that our, the existing exemption was inadequately justified and was therefore considered a privilege or immunity, which is unconstitutional in the Washington state constitution. They struck down the exemption immediately for dairy uh, because that was the industry that was the subject of that lawsuit. Uh, but the argument that they that the court upheld would apply pretty much to all of agriculture. And so we knew that all it took was another legal advocacy group to file one more lawsuit and we would have uh, the act struck down for the rest of agriculture, the exemption, I should say. And part of the challenge there was that they didn't just strike it down by saying it was unconstitutional. Our court left open the possibility that you could say, uh, as, a, as a former or current employee, I was unfairly and unjustly denied overtime in the past, even though the grower was following the law. Therefore, I'm owed penalties, uh, both back pay and penalties for that. And there were a flood of lawsuits in the, on the dairy side that were being filed seeking those, those penalties and back payments. So there was a lot of concern and need to protect the industry more broadly from those, both dairy from those backwards looking claims and the rest of agriculture from the same situation. Uh, and so we went into our legislative session uh, in 2021 facing that environment, you know, where we'd already essentially lost the Supreme Court case and needed to get the best conditions that we could for agriculture. Um, we were able to negotiate a phase-in period uh, and no retroactive claims. We thought we had an agreement for some ongoing seasonal flexibility. Uh, but in terms of the give and take over uh, what kind of claims would go to the dairy industry, that that portion uh, that would provide seasonal flexibility was not included in the bill that before the legislature was passed. And we were just given the assurance that, well, well, we'll keep negotiating this one. We'll keep talking about it. Uh, and we are still talking about it. We phased in over the course of the next three years down to 40 hours as of January 1. Uh, over time and a half overtime in Washington State for agricultural workers is after 40 hours. Uh, the uh, the proposal that had been discussed at the time that bill was passed uh, was for 20 weeks of the employer's choosing where the threshold for time and a half overtime is at 50 hours. So it's not an, it's not going back to the status quo before the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, it's just giving a little higher level during times of peak activity for producers. Uh, and it's not unlimited. Uh, that's pretty reasonable, and it's in line with what other states that have ag overtime requirements have. Uh, they tend to be either a higher permanent threshold, a higher seasonal threshold. Uh, and in a lot of cases, tax incentives or credits uh, to offset the cost for producers. Uh, it's really only California that has gone to 40 hours without any of those other alternatives as well, and Washington State's doing the same thing. Uh, and what we're finding in both of those states is that uh, producers are having a lot of trouble producing what they need to uh, at peak periods within that 40-hour threshold. And given the low margins in agriculture, often that means things are not going to happen. So we've seen apples, for example, that just don't get picked. Uh, because you run out of your crew runs out of time in that pay period and you have to 
look at what the incremental cost increases from doing overtime to get the, that harvested. Uh, and unless it's an extremely high value variety with high demand at the moment, it's not really going to justify being picked. And so there's more food waste uh, and a lot of frustration on the part of employees who were promised by by a lot of advocates that, oh, this is going to mean all this extra money for you. And instead, they're they're finding that, well, you can't get paid what people don't have. And so when you reach 40 hours, your hours are done for the week and workers that were counting on uh, earning a lot of hours and a lot of extra income during harvest periods are finding that their actual net income has gone down. Uh, there's a study from the University of California that found that that's the case there, and that's what we're seeing in Washington as well. And so it's on that basis that we've been talking to legislators saying this, this may not be the best solution for either farmers or farm workers. Uh, agriculture really isn't a nine to five year round, 40 hour a week kind of work environment. And so there needs to be a little more flexibility to reflect that while still having protections to make sure that people are not working unsustainably long hours on an ongoing basis. Yeah. I mean, I know from my time in the industry before working at the Packer, you know, I I know I of stories where families would be depending upon that money. You know, you'd have a, an age two A worker that would be earning as much as they could during their time here in the states to support their family back home. And you know, the the cha- the changes in living situations from being an age two A worker and those wages just made a huge impact on families. Um, so yeah, that's. I'm sure that's frustrating for everyone, but that that sounds really disappointing to the workers. You know, a lot of these workers come back to farms because they have a relationship and they they know what they're doing and they they love who they work for. And then to see where that relationship could be changing or just, you know, the family back home doesn't get what they're expecting um, is, is also really tough. So we, we had a number of our uh, members over in uh, our state capital in Olympia this last week, talking to legislators about this issue. And just a couple of days later, there was a rally of over 200 farm workers across agriculture um, that came to Olympia through the under the organization of a group called the Center for Latino Leadership uh, to talk about their frustration with the fact that the policy is resulting in loss of income for them. Uh, and that they they were they did not feel like they were consulted in this process. It was the result of litigation on behalf of a few clients uh, that were pursuing that change. And so there was there was some f- expression of frustration by the farm workers too. And I think that that's being heard. Uh, there is a hearing on that uh, seasonal flexibility bill in our state legislature uh, you know, tomorrow morning. In fact, so. There, there is, there does continue to be that discussion around these issues, uh, and the need to recognize that there. Sometimes, when we implement policies that sound good, there are unintended consequences, uh, and it often requires the legislative bodies to go back and take a second look at those issues. Yeah, and I, and I think probably a take-home message for our listeners is just you know pay attention as these legislations roll out, as, as you well know. You know, one, it's kind of a, a domino effect where a couple states put this in place and then it starts to roll out into more and more states. So, um, cool. yeah. And frequently, these West Coast states are setting policies that then spread inland yeah. and, and, and east. And so it really is incumbent upon everyone to watch some of these. Uh, you know, another issue that we were talking about with our legislators is something that, again, sounds like a great idea. 
uh, and is well-intentioned, but includes some, some challenging provisions that would cause problems. Uh, there are state legislatures considering uh, some policy changes to try to reduce uh, the amount of food waste going into landfills. Well, obviously, a good thing to do. You don't. You if you have food that might still be edible that you know is being pulled from store shelves, can it go to a food bank? That provide incentives for that. Uh, if it is not edible and it's going to go into a waste stream, is there a way to get it into a compost system instead of going into a landfill where it might you know, decay and have methane emissions from landfills? You know, things of concern on from the climate side. Uh, but within that bill is a proposal to ban all plastic produce stickers for any produce grown in Washington or shipped into Washington. So a requirement from a reasonably large state that would have impact throughout the produce industry in the United States. Uh, we don't think that that kind of disruption was their intention. Their goal is to facilitate composting. Uh, but they needed to understand that you know, the the suppliers of the uh, of produce stickers really clarified that there might be some fiber based labels available, but they don't necessarily meet all of the standards in the in the bill for compostability certification, uh, and that they may not uh, perform the way the retailers need them to. Um, produce sector, you know, tends to have a lot of moisture associated with the retail, and paper and water don't always get along. <laughs> And, but, and so we're concerned that retailers are going to be very frustrated with uh, stickering that is not durable and that they do not get the sales that they were counting on uh, in on product. And as a result, if this act were to go through, uh, we might, because if, the, if in fact it appears the product, the viable product is not available, retailers will just insist that all produce go into consumer packs. And so... From an environmental perspective, if your goal is to reduce the environmental impact of the produce sector, and you just now drastically increase the amount of packaging material in the chain, supply chain, have you really done a good thing? Uh, probably not. Um, and so this is something that we are watching, and we really appreciate uh, the IFPA support. The IFPA weighed in on this issue with our legislators to make sure that they were aware this was a national concern as well. So this is this is an issue that we're watching closely, and it's not one that's super ideological. It's really about educating people who don't spend a lot of time in the produce sector that uh, there are other issues that they need to think about, and that there's implementation feasibility issues. Just technically, is it possible to do what you're asking us to do in the time frame you're asking us to do it? And we don't think so. <laughs> that's interesting, and obviously, you know. There's there's the conversation about what's happening in British Columbia and how that's going to impact. Um, but one thing I will say, so I just came back from our uh, global organic produce expo, and it was really neat. I, I went around. Obviously, I, I went to to see uh, companies I recognize from my previous roles. But um, you know, I got a chance to see a lot of sustainable packaging. Yes, they're in larger quantities. Where you know, I feel like. Um, especially with apples and even pears, you know, they're, they're bulk. Bulk sales are just as important as, um, you know, package sales. But it was kind of neat to see that there was a huge shift to um, cardboard packaging, four packs, and, and some, some really neat sustainable packaging efforts in there too. But, you know, for those top varieties, if they don't get a sticker, if they don't get the ring, if they get, you know, ring up as a red delicious, that, that price differential is very different. 
Yeah, there's, and that's just exactly it. There's a lot of innovation going on in our, our industry sector uh, to try to address consumer concerns uh, and meet some of those targets. But if you set unrealistic goals and try to tell people exactly how to get there and on what time frame, uh, from a government perspective, you might cause those unintended consequences that might actually have the exact opposite intent, you know, and actually increase the the carbon footprint of the supply chain, which is not what any any of our policymakers really want to do. No, and it doesn't really seem like that's something that could be implemented with the snap of a finger either. So if you're going to change, like you said, you're going to upend the the entire packaging. Um, there's got to be a reasonable runway and a reasonable solution for that. Uh, absolutely. Um, well, you know, I think we hit on a, a lot of the conversation and the talking points um, that you wanted to bring up. You know, I had some other questions in there, too. One that I thought would be interesting to kind of the overtime conversation was also just the wage rate for Washington right now. Do you do you have that off the top of your hand, your fingers? Well, we have a lot of utilization of the H-2A guest worker yes. program here in Washington State. Uh, Washington State has a fairly strong economy, and there's a lot of competition for available workers. And we've seen a long, ongoing worker shortage in agriculture in, in the Northwest. Uh, so we have uh, had growing use of the H-2A program. And as a result, we have one of the higher H-2A adverse effect wage rates that currently for this year, nineteen twenty-five an hour. Uh, again, then think about time and a half. Uh, uh, plus, uh, many of our non-H2A employers, because of the requirements for ongoing recruitment for those employers, and there's so many of them around, uh, that tends to become the default wage rate in, in the region. And so that is pretty typical wages paid by just about every agricultural employer in, in Washington state is, is that much or more. Uh, and that's uh, not an easy wage rate to pay, uh, and it is, uh, especially if you're thinking about an overtime requirement on top of that and other expenses, that level of inflation and the wage rate going up 6-7% a year uh, for your largest uh, production expense has been hard, uh, hard to absorb. Uh, even if you're innovating with new technology and efficiencies, it's hard to efficiency your way out of a 7% annual uh, cost increase. Uh, and so that is, uh, you know, a reason for the um, a level of grower anxiety, uh, around sustainability of the business model. When you're seeing that kind of production cost increase while you know, the price you're receiving for your product, uh, the wholesale is been flat. Yeah. And, and I definitely, I thank you for indulging me in that. Cause I, I do think that's another important Part of the picture with this overtime law is just where wages are currently and then you know as you said adding on to that double time uh time and a half as you as you need to um yeah it just makes that more complex yes and that the overall workforce issues are attracting a lot of attention and thought and investment across our industry uh, we're looking constantly at how to be more efficient through automating processes, uh, having automation assists to the existing workforce. You know, there's always a lot of attention around, can you replace people with robots? Well, maybe in some cases, but there's also, how do you make the people you have more efficient? Uh, but that also requires a lot of capital investment. 
Uh, and it requires a lot of investment in your existing workforce to upskill them to be able to fully utilize those technologies. So the level of investment in our current workforce is also something that we're spending a lot of time on. And it's something that we actually have good support from policymakers as well, who do want to make sure that uh, there are job opportunities for the current agricultural workforce as the industry changes. Uh, we've had good support for a program that our, our association has developed in partnership with our State Department of Agriculture and Washington State University called the Agricultural Leadership Program, where we're working a lot with new supervisors in the industry you know, uh, to upskill their human management and people skills uh, and communication skills so that they can be more effective leaders within their organizations. Uh, Often we find the best worker becomes a field man, you know, field crew boss, uh, because they were very productive themselves. And we just assume that uh, that promotion into management conveys with it the uh, uh, people management skills that you hope for. Uh, and we don't necessarily always have uh, resources within farm operations uh, to help teach those skills. Uh, so we have been delivering these classes in English and Spanish to these supervisors and have been very well received, so much so that our state uh, Department of Agriculture has proposed some additional funding to help expand that program across other commodities in our state as well. Uh, and that's before our legislature right now, so potential inclusion in, in our state budget. That's great. And, you know, I like that you added some positive, uh, some positive notes in there. You know, because I, I do think there's a lot a lot of great things going on in the state. Obviously, growers face challenges. That's that's something that's never going to change. But um, it's nice to hear where there's focus and ag still has obviously a huge seat at uh, the table um, within your, your state legislature. And, and I hope, um, you know, like I said, I hope people listening to this kind of understand what's going on, um, you know, in Washington and and maybe how that could potentially impact um, their business in their state as well. Yes, and I hope that we're a good lesson for others in, you know, the, in an urbanizing environment that the agriculture is important in Washington, but the percentage of Washington's population involved in agriculture is pretty modest these days. So uh, it's really essential that we work constantly to educate policymakers about our issues. It doesn't really do a lot of good to take the grower at the coffee shop model of let's all sit around and complain about people not understanding us. No, we need to make sure that we're educating uh, urban residents and uh, both as voters and as customers uh, and policymakers on our issues because they're often not setting, they're not setting out to do us harm. Uh, they're doing it unintentionally. Uh, and if we can help them understand the challenges that we face as people who produce their food, uh, they're often willing to cooperate with us in achieving their goals in less harmful ways or addressing issues that are really uh, burdensome or harmful to producers and making their lives hopefully Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, this has been a fantastic conversation. So I think you've done a, a good job of covering everything. Is there Anything else you want to address that we didn't, that I didn't ask you about? No, I think you asked some great questions. I just really appreciate the chance to talk with you today. Thank you. A absolutely. Well, I know I'm going to, I'll see you somewhere soon, whether it's, I don't know if it's in Chicago or where I'll be, but uh, I know uh, I have a feeling we'll, we'll run into each other in person relatively soon. 
Great. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Yeah. So well, thank you again for joining me and, and have a great rest of the day. Thanks. You too. Yep. Goodbye. Bye. I just want to say a huge thank you to John Devaney of the Washington State Tree Fruit Association for joining me on Tip of the Iceberg. I think it was a great conversation. I learned a lot about how legislation in the state is impacting fresh produce growers and the ripple effect it can have on fresh produce growers in other states. Um, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. And don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can tune in on your favorite podcast platform like Google Play, Spotify, Apple, and more. And thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you soon.